Hello, 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 and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. We are your hosts. I am the Bull Bay. No, I'm the Bull Bay. I mean, sometimes, but you know. <laughs> okay, today I'm the Bull, Kirsten Michelle Sills. Yes, give it back. And Bay and I are so happy to bring you our final episode of season two of So Curious. We did it. Yeah, yeah. Long season, but a fun season, incredible <sighs> season. Uh, this season has been a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. We have covered a lot of topics. We have talked about uh, how frogs make first impressions on their mates. We talked about hookup culture today. We talked about marriage, non-monogamy, and everything in between. And now, in true dramatic fashion, we are going to go out with a bang. In our final episode of this season, we are going to be breaking down ghosting and rejection. The demise of connection, ghosting. Yeah, harsh. So in this episode, we are talking with social psychologist, Dr. Gilly Friedman, about the best way to reject someone. So, you know, get your notes and (laughs) take notes. (laughs) And later, we're going to hear from Philadelphia street artist, Amberella, about her art installation dedicated specifically to the man who ghosted her. Epic. Iconic. So, Bay, as artists, right, in our field, rejection is a big old part of it, right? We, as performers, we just get our feelings hurt for a living sometimes, right? Yeah, no, it's kind of true. Yeah. How, how have you kind of learned to navigate that in your career? It's obviously so much harder in the beginning, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think the hardest thing about being creative and going into these art spaces is that, like, we're trying to make... We're commodifying our emotions, and that's tough uh, because when you get rejected, that's like, you know, I really like this thing, and I really wanted to mm-hmm. see this happen. And um, it depends on how many times I get rejected. I'm a pretty stubborn and persistent person, <laughs> and I tend to be patient. I think patience is is really helpful for me because if an idea gets shut down, I'll wait and see if there's another opportunity for that idea to be uh, accepted again. Damn. Um, because good ideas are just good ideas. It, it may not happen at that exact moment, but be you know be patient and work on it still. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so much about, um, I don't know, jumping on every opportunity. You just have to kind of be patient. So I, I'm patient and I'm kind and equal parts grace, equal parts persistence. Damn. I have an exact opposite um, take on rejection, which Dude. is that just anytime I get rejected, I just jump into the Google. No, I'm just um, <laughs> I, yeah, it's hard. It was really hard at the beginning, especially as an actor. I mean, that is literally, you know, the statistic is always like for every 100 times you audition, you will get one of those, right? It, you're always being told no. And it's super hard in the beginning because like you said, it's like, this is me though. There's no... Don't take it personally. It's just business. It's like, I'm not, you know, applying for a job to work at a certain place. Like I'm asking you to like me and you're like, oh, you know, right. But, but it, it, it's freaking hard. Oh my God. And it never gets easier, but you do learn better ways to be rejected um, and better ways to handle it, which is why I think also it's really cool to hear that there is like a science behind it. Right. And that's, a great segue. We're going to hear some more about rejection from that scientific standpoint. So let's bring on our first guest, rejection expert, Dr. Gilly Friedman. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Um, So Gilly, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do? So I'm an assistant professor of psychology at St. Mary's College of Maryland. 
And I'm a social psychologist, and one of the main things I study is social rejection. Nice. Tell us about your academic journey. What inspired you to study social exclusion? So I started thinking about social exclusion when I was an undergrad at Haverford College, and I wound up doing my senior thesis on that topic. And I was reading about it and noticing that a lot of the work really focused on how it feels to be rejected. And the answer is generally really bad, as you might imagine. (laughs) Mm. Um, But what there was a lot less on is what's going on with the person doing the rejecting? Why are they doing it? How do they feel? Um, Does it matter who they are as a person in terms of how they decide to do it? And so I went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin and wound up working with Dr. Jennifer Beer and started uh, thinking about the sort of two-sided nature of social rejection and when people decide to reject and the language they use when they're rejecting. And that's how it got started. Could you explain some of the different tools that you have used to study social rejection? And specifically, since we're going to be talking about ghosting today, specifically ghosting? A lot of the work that we do on ghosting and on rejection uses pretty typical self-report methods like surveys and things like that. But we also have been able to use things like interactive narratives. So there's this tool called Twine that you can use online, it's free to use, and you can create a story where people have choices. So if you remember like choose your own adventure books where you go in and there's a choice and you get to decide, you know, for the choose your own adventure ones, like do I go into the cave or do I go explore the woods? And we use that for some of our rejection work, putting people in situations and asking them, what would you do here? Would you um, uh, tell the person this thing or would you tell them this other thing? And so that's been great because it allows our participants to have a more immersive experience instead of just asking them questions. And it lets us look at some interesting uh, ideas. So for example, one of my, uh, at St. Mary's College of Maryland, I work with really great undergraduate students and they all do a senior thesis. And so one of my students is doing one on rejection and she used this interactive narrative to look at deception within the context of rejection. And so she lets people be in this story where they're interacting with someone and they have to decide how to reject them and thinking about how how lies play a role in that. Can you explain why it's sometimes harder to reject than you reject it? I think that it can be really hard because of something called scriptlessness. Uh, This is something that researchers were talking about in the 90s, but the idea that when we're in a social situation, we have scripts that we follow. So if you're in a restaurant and someone comes up to you with a notepad, you know that they're probably going to ask you what you want to eat, and you're going to tell them that, and at some point they'll bring it back. But with rejection, we don't have any good scripts. There's no great way of rejecting because anything that would be a script is a cliche. So you could say, it's not you, it's me, but everyone knows that's a cliche, so it doesn't work. And so you're put in this situation where you don't know what to say, there's no great thing you can say, and you don't necessarily want to hurt the other person, right? You just, you just don't want to do whatever it is with them. And so that puts people in an uncomfortable situation that they don't know how to get out of, and we have no good answers for them. Do you have any good scripts to offer us? Like, you know, can mm. you give me a new script other than like, you know, it's not you, it's me? I would love to. That's what we're trying to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we don't have a great answer. Um, we know that some things don't seem to help. So like apologies don't seem to be a great solution to that problem. But we don't have a great answer for like, this is definitely what you should do. So you have an article that you wrote when saying sorry may not help the impact of apologies on social rejection. Basically, you're finding that rejections that include apologies actually increase hurt feelings and increase aggression. Can you explain why you think this might be? In some ways, this comes back to the idea of a script. And when we apologize to someone, like in any context, we kind of expect that they're going to forgive us. So if I, you know, bump into you and I say, oh, I'm sorry, I expect you to say, oh, that's okay. 
right? And if you don't, that's weird. And so what happens is we are kind of constraining people's responses when we apologize because there's a social norm they're supposed to follow. Now, if I've rejected you, you're probably upset. You're probably hurt. It's not a great situation. And then I apologize. Well, now you need to tell me that that's okay. So you in some ways need to comfort me, even though I'm just the one who rejected you. And we think that that really puts people in a situation they don't like being in because they're having to express forgiveness without actually feeling it. So if you've ever been in a situation where someone's apologized to you and you're like, I really don't forgive you right now, but you felt like you have to say that's okay, it doesn't feel good, right? Let's turn to the topic of ghosting specifically. What differentiates ghosting from other forms of rejection? Ghosting is different in that you're not actually communicating the rejection. Your lack of communication is the action. So we think about ghosting as ending a relationship by cutting off all contact. So in other forms of rejection, you might tell the person, right? Whereas with ghosting, they're sending you messages maybe, they're trying to get in touch with you and you're just not answering. And that leaves them in a state of not knowing, right? There's that moment when you've been ghosted where you're not actually sure if you have yet because maybe they just haven't responded. And I think that really differentiates it from a more explicit form of rejection where you know, oh, it's over. I'll jump on to the next question. In your article, Ghosting and Destiny, you talk about implicit theories of relationships that have identified two types of beliefs, destiny and growth. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, this is really interesting work that is still being done on how we think about the nature of relationships. And so people vary in terms of how they conceive of relationships in general, not like a specific relationship, but overall. And so people can believe, for example, that a relationship is either gonna work or it's not, that the success of a relationship is destined from the very beginning, and those are called destiny beliefs. Or you could believe that relationships uh, need to be worked on over time, that with enough effort, any relationship can work, that relationships are like a garden that need to be tended. Those are growth beliefs. And so people vary in terms of how strongly they believe each of those things. Yeah, can these theories help us understand ghosting any better? So what we found that we were really intrigued by was that people who have stronger destiny beliefs feel more positively about ghosting, they're more likely to say they would ghost, and they're more likely to have previously used ghosting to end relationships before, which makes a lot of sense because if you think that a relationship's either gonna work or it isn't, then just cutting it off when you feel like it's not working anymore, that's probably pretty rational. Whereas if you're someone who thinks less like that and you don't think it's just one person and this is either it or it's not, then ghosting might feel a little harsh and like, why aren't you giving it more of a chance? Why are you just cutting it off like so completely? What are the research methods to measure the impact of ghosting and the reason people do it? Like, what's the bar for that? So for a lot of that, it's really self-report. So asking people to tell us, have you ghosted before? Have you been ghosted? How did that make you feel? Because with these things, it's really, it's your experience, right? And if we want to understand your experience, then sometimes just asking about that can be the best way of doing it. There are a lot of reasons that people will give if you ask them, like, why did you ghost someone? And one of those is not wanting to hurt someone's feelings, feeling like it's easier. The thing that keeps me really interested in social rejection is the fact that you have two sides who have legitimate worries and negative emotions and you're trying to balance it. And it's not really a villain hero story, right? Which is a lot of times how it's portrayed in the media of like, oh, the person you rejected is a terrible person. They're breaking that other person's heart. But both people are managing complex emotions and the rejector might not want to hurt the other person. And so they're looking for ways to do it. And maybe they make bad decisions sometimes because we don't know how to do it. But I think ghosting can really fall under that category a lot of times of, I don't know how to end this well. I don't know what the right thing to say is. It's going to be really uncomfortable. Maybe if I just don't say anything, it'll be better for everyone. Do you have any personal accounts or stories to share 
where the rejection had a more healthier outcome and the rejection maybe had a more uh, not so pleasant or pretty outcome? So I think one example I have of how complicated it is, is I had been on a few dates with someone years ago and it went pretty well. He had asked me, like he had initiated the first couple dates. I sent him a message about the third and he wrote me back a very kind, lovely message saying he wasn't interested, but it had been great to hang out. And I remember this because I felt hurt and I was studying rejection at the time and I even knew like, oh, this was a nice rejection, right? He did everything he was supposed to, but I still don't feel great. And I think that really highlights the complicated nature of it, right? That you can do everything right and the other person is still going to have feelings and that's okay, right? That's just kind of part of the process. The one time I've ghosted someone, I did feel very guilty about it. I just didn't know what to say. It was exactly that situation. I wasn't interested and they sent me pictures of graphs from their research in a text message. And I was just like, I don't know what to say to this. And I never responded. Um, so that was probably not the most mature way of dealing with it, but it was 100% for reasons we just talked about, right? I didn't have a script. I didn't know what to say. Didn't want to hurt the person, but that's sort of how it wound up. Do you have any recommendations for ways that might be a good way to reject somebody? I think in general, what the research has shown is that not talking to people isn't great. So there's a lot of work on ostracism, which is the silent treatment, um, which has a lot of similarities to ghosting. And a lot of that research shows it's a really hurtful thing to do. It's hard to get over. And so I think when you can communicate, that's gonna be a better bet for the most part. And people generally, tend to appreciate it. And I think in terms of what to say, you know, I think not apologizing is probably a good thing. I think thinking about what you would want to be told, right? Um, and remembering that that other person has feelings and is also entitled to their feelings, right? Because again, you could say everything right and they still might not be super happy and that's just the reality of the situation. Thank you for, for taking time and, and not rejecting us and, yeah. and, 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 and stepping into the space with information and just a really open conversation. I really appreciate that. Yeah, this is super interesting to hear. There is so much science and research behind something that feels so universal but doesn't feel like it's talked about very often. Right, so thank right. you for doing the work that you do. Thank you for having me here. It's been fun. Thank you so much to Dr. Gilly Freeman. Mm, okay, so when we talk about ghosting, most of the time it's with dates, right? Yeah. But it can also be with friends, job interviews, other things. Yeah. Have you ever been ghosted? Or in any sense, have you ever been ghosted? But I'm also curious specifically when it comes to love, sex, and relationships. Um, I would say a friend definitely just created distance and just mm. stopped speaking to me. And I'm like, well, what happened? I mean, I had a sense of what event took place that kind of sparked that behavior, but no explanation, no clear explanation. It just kind of happened. Um, and it is baffling. Um, I do my best not to judge. We all are carrying all kinds of social baggage and trying to just navigate that as best as possible. And, and you know, some it can hurt, you know, but that builds resilience that's a part of socialization. Like, you know, you have to have some rejections. I can't imagine anyone who's never been rejected. Who's that person? Who's that person that's never been ghosted, never been rejected, never been turned down? Part of me is like, well, they must be the most perfect person in the world. But in reality, it's like that means they just never have put themselves out there ever probably, right? Like you have to at least take a risk, whether you're trying to date, whether you're trying to audition, submit for something, apply for a job, like it takes vulnerability. You yeah. have to have an ability to put yourself out there. And if you get rejected, I mean, you're gonna at some point, right? right? Ghosting 
in my experience, is like a private affair. Like people kind of keep their stories of being rejected to themselves because it feels shameful or embarrassing or whatever. And our next guest has dealt with her ghosting in quite the opposite way, uh, because after she was ghosted, local street artist Amberella created a very, very public art display on the streets of Philadelphia. Welcome. So Amber, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Introduce yourself. I've been between Philly and California for a couple years now. I'm an artist and I show my work typically in public places. As a Philly resident, I have seen your work all over. I love what you do. Can you tell us about your relationship to the city of Philadelphia? Philly definitely has a special place in my heart. And I grew up in Pennsylvania in the suburbs. Once I was in like middle school, I like started sneaking on the train to the city and like going to punk rock shows and basements in West <laughs> Philly. And I like really fell in love with the city. And it was always my dream to get to live there one day. I moved there in 99. You mentioned all your artwork being outside. I think during the pandemic, we caught a glimpse of Philadelphia and many cities around the country, right? Completely empty. Mm. The, no, no cars, no, no, no things just taking up space. How would you want to fill up or utilize space moving into the future? What comes to mind like right away is more space for like performance art. I just see the streets filled with artists like of all mediums. How long have you been a mixed media artist and is your art your main form of expression? I feel like I've been an artist since I was born and my mom just let me express myself in all different types of ways. And it's definitely my main form of expression. My art is a living, breathing embodiment of my heart. I find inspiration from the 90s. I was always really inspired actually by like advertisement and magazines. And mm. like one of my series, I use the Magic 8-Ball. I use the label makers for one of my series. So like I kind of always draw from that time. Tell us about the haiku that you wrote for... A man that you met on Hinge. <laughs> yeah, so I wrote this out on a piece of paper, just like in my notebook and took a photo of it and sent a photo of it to a man. It's a haiku. It's called, Where'd You Go? You sucked my melons. We ate meat lovers pizza. Did you get too full? Like, where'd you go? You know? <laughs> I love so... <laughs> it. I love it. I absolutely love it. Obviously, most people view ghosting as a disinterest in them. How, in your experience, might this not always be the case? I think there's a lot of different reasons that people ghost. That's the time that I think it's important to get curious and maybe like ask questions mm. because there's other things that could be going on. One person's openness could lead to another's type of thing. Maybe they haven't experienced before the opportunity to relate with someone that's able to be that open. Could you give us that backstory of the haiku? We went on a couple really awesome dates. I hadn't heard from him in like, I don't know, a couple days. I just took it as an opportunity to really think about what could open the moment. I've been working with a couple teachers for the past few years about working with relating and polarity. Something that I've learned from them is that there's three stages of relating and one is thinking of just yourself. And typically like when you get ghosted, it's like you feel attacked. You're like, why is this happening to me? 
The second stage of relating is thinking of us when you're thinking of like both people. And that would lead to like a healthy conversation. So like maybe reaching out to him and saying like, hey, could we have a conversation? Could we drop in? Like, I'm curious what happened. And then the third stage of relating, it's kind of considering a higher love when you're not thinking of just yourself or just the two people, like a collective higher love would be like, how can I bring love to this moment without like any story attached? And like, what could be a gift to this moment and open the moment? And the gift that can be found in that situation for the other person It's interesting because what I've learned over the past two years is something that I might consider a gift may not be a gift to that particular person. So with this man, I really thought about like, what would like be a gift to him? Like what would open him? And I just kept getting the hit, like something humorous, bringing light to the situation. He texts me back immediately and he was like, thank you so much for the levity that you're bringing to this situation. And he was like, I owe you like an explanation. And like that opened the moment in like such a beautiful way. And like, I truly was trying to gift him in that moment and just open things. I wasn't like, I'm going to write this because I want him to X, Y, and Z. I just was like, how can I be brave and like literally choose love over fear? I mean, it it was clearly effective. I mean, it seems like he probably, among many things, not only appreciated the humor, but also the the bravery to send that because we did have a whole big talk about ghosting recently. And I haven't really heard much about people who, you know, confront the fact that they're being ghosted. And so after this piece sort of like gained momentum, did other people share that they had shared experiences? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just like such a huge part of our our culture. What I really loved is when I shared this in a public space, I did so in collaboration with an artist named Lace in the Moon. And her perspective on ghosting was more about um, how we experience that in the workforce and like as artists. And I, I loved that she brought that piece to this because I think that it happens everywhere. It's not just in relating. When I shared this haiku that I had written for him in a public space, I asked him permission first because it really was a gift for him. And he was so excited. He's like, I love that you're going to share with the world your practice. I think it's just such an interesting way to show people we can be different. We really can choose love in these really creative, different ways. And like, I also had another situation with a man where I got ghosted. We were like going on a trip to the Joshua tree and it was all planned and booked. And like, he ghosted me and I like made a diorama of the Joshua tree and like made this like whole video it didn't go over well. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh, wow. So same, yeah. <laughs> same tactic and not at all a, a good response. Yeah. 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 On your Instagram, you have a couple of posts of art pieces that you have been working on. One is uh, what can serve a higher love? What would I do if I was 
unafraid of losing love. What do you mm. mean by this? What, what's the story behind these concepts? One of the teachers that I have gotten to work with for the past two years, his name's John Wineland. He's brought this whole concept that he'll say, like, what would you do if you were unafraid of losing love? And like, I just feel like we've been programmed our entire lives to like, close and protect ourselves and like we're in this fear because we're told to like act a certain way or like an example would be with men like playing hard to get don't text him back too soon like mm. all these things and I'm like no if I was unafraid of losing love in this moment right now would I text him back being brave with like my creativity surrounding being an artist of love. Like I love to make everything into art and like what a fun way to move through this world, especially in relating. Like it's fun and interesting and weird and exciting. I wouldn't want it any other way. I love the work that you're doing. I love seeing your art all around Philadelphia. Amberlynn, if you were right here in front of us, we would say all these things just the same. We really appreciate <laughs> you coming on the So Curious <laughs> podcast. So I'm headed to Philly next week and I'm starting an artist residency at my friend's shop called True Hand Society. I'm creating a new body of work called Passing Notes. And they're kind of going to look like when you think of ransom notes, but they're going to be on the wall. And the whole idea is that the person walking by is passing these notes, but I'm actually passing notes to the universe. And they're all going to share my healthy needs and desires surrounding a partnership. I'm really excited. Thank you. Yeah. I look yeah. forward to hopefully getting to see it around Philly. Yeah, we'll be checking yeah. for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been awesome to talk to you. Wow, what a great way to wrap up the season. Mm -hmm. What has it meant for you to be able to host this season of So Curious? I mean, a lot, but I think I, obviously, as in my career path as a comedian and as a podcaster and an actor, I feel like so much of what I do in my job, whether I'm acting in something that's about sex, love, and relationships, or joking about it, or whatever it may be, or talking about it, I have so many opinions, but so little actual knowledge on the scientific standpoint. So genuinely, I feel like this is the closest I'm ever, this podcast is like the closest I'm ever going to get to like going back to school. You know, it's like I'm actually learning so much by having these conversations, and it's been I mean, I hope it was beneficial for the listeners because it was super beneficial for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Shout out to and, the Franklin Institute. Oh, yeah. And uh, Bay, what was your favorite part of the season? I think it was my joke about pretzels. <laughs> That's crazy because that was my least favorite part. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it was really, I think for me, it was really insightful to see some of the mechanisms and behaviors and functions and operations of mm -hmm. science and seeing how we can learn from that. Um, as individuals, but certainly as community members, I, I really love the note about frogs and, um, <laughs> and relating all of that to empathy and, 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 and putting yourself in the position of the listener. You know, that resonates with me as, as someone who makes music, yeah. uh, putting yourself in the position of the listener and like, you know, what are they feeling and what are they looking for and all these other different things. And, you know, empathy, empathy, empathy. You and those frogs are one and the same, basically. You know what I'm saying? That's pretty cool. Damn. Mm -hmm. That was a great answer. Well, folks, thank you so much for joining us all summer long in exploring this very relevant and very universal topic. I really hope that you as the listeners have learned something as much as Bay and I have. Mm -hmm. 
We will see you next season for more discoveries in human science and technology from the Franklin Institute. Mm, I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. Go science and go birds. I am the Boa Bay. Thank you guys for listening this season. We appreciate you. Mm, we really do. Okay, Kirsten. Okay, Bay. I'm going to miss you. <laughs> no, it's been great uh, hosting this season with you. Thank you so much for joining the So Curious family. Mm, the family. You know? Thank you for having me. This has been amazing and uh, it's been real. Absolutely. So Curious is presented by the Franklin Institute and special thanks to the Franklin Institute producers, Joy Montefusco and Dr. Jayatri Das. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. The managing producer is Emily Cherish. The producer is Liliana Green. The lead audio engineer and editor is Christian Cederland. The editors are Lauren DeLuca and Justin Berger. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. The science writer is Kira Vayette. And the graphic designer is Emma Sager. 